0: On, gal, don't take me far, No food. I ain't gonna quit your pretty mama while the weather goes
1: around your back. Futurists are looking at the 21st century and all myths that are. Uh... Authentic, maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality.
2: Computers are taking
1: over now.
0: By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic
1: people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. Ahead, if you ever was the devil bought that any honor, better burn your man.
0: I hear you, Mama.
3: When I was a kid, we had a next door neighbor named Rachel. She was this elderly lady, very kind, very sweet. Everyone in the family, uh, everyone in the whole neighborhood absolutely loved her. Now in this neighborhood, the Mormon church was like two blocks in one direction from my house and the Baptist church was two blocks in the other direction. Rachel was a Baptist. And I guess it pained her to see the neighbor kids going off each Sunday to the Mormon church, because. I don't know if you know this or not, but pretty much all other Christian denominations don't consider Mormons to be Christians, and Baptists feel, shall we say, especially strongly on that point. So Rachel, bless her heart, saw it as her Christian duty to save the souls of the two little neighbor girls next door, and she often invited my sister and me to visit her church with her, and we politely declined, because like... My sister and I didn't even particularly like going to our church, so why would we like another one? But one day, Rachel took a different tack. She invited me out for deep fried ice cream. Now, as I have mentioned before on this podcast, I am uniquely susceptible to sweets. If there's cake or cookies on offer, I will do the thing. I will patiently suffer any religious indignity if there were going to be bars and punch in the fellowship hall afterwards. So I instantly said yes to deep fried ice cream, which I'd never had the pleasure of sampling before, even though I knew Rachel was going to evangelize to me. And she did. (laughs) She told me all about how fun her church was and how there is this great youth group. I think I was like 12 at the time. And she would love it if I'd go with her just one Sunday so I could see how great her church was. So I said yes. Yeah, sure, I'll go to your weird Baptist church because you know, maybe there would be future helpings of deep fried ice cream in it for me. So the next Sunday I attended church with Rachel. And I don't really remember anything about the service. I remember thinking it was weird that this church didn't do any kind of sacrament since that's like a really big part of Mormon worship. But after the main service, it was time for Sunday school, just like at my own church. And I went down into this basement room with the youth group, for our class this poor poor sunday school teacher she was a harried looking younger woman like maybe in her late 20s and i think she already had her hands full with a class full of preteens and then this mormon kid shows up see here's the thing about mormonism as a religion It allows for a whole lot of things that certain other Christian denominations, uh, particularly very conservative, like Protestants, like Baptists, absolutely cannot tolerate. Not won't, like, cannot tolerate, because if they tolerate these things, the fabric of their faith will fall apart, since they don't view the Bible as metaphorical, the way most Catholics and many other Protestants do, but literal. If every word of the Bible is not literally true, then their entire religion just doesn't work. It goes bye-bye. So certain ideas or even certain facts are intensely threatening to Baptists and other evangelicals, while Mormons find no discomfort whatsoever in accepting those things. Transhumanism, for example, uniquely and intensely terrifying to evangelicals, while for Mormons, transhumanism is basically the whole point of being alive. There's even a Mormon transhumanist association of which I am a member, even though I'm no longer Mormon. Now, if we could just, like, get mainstream Mormons to accept that transgender is part of transhumanism, that'd be great. The Mormon transhumanist association certainly does. It's actually, like, in their affirmation statement, but I digress. Another idea that Mormons have no trouble working into their religion is evolution. It's just not something that conflicts with Mormon cosmology. Latter-day Saints see evolution as a tool God uses in creation, like a process that was initiated by God and is guided by God and is a scientific fact, and nobody in that religion has the least problem accepting that evolution is real. Not so for Baptists, as you may have noticed. Another idea that Mormons are completely comfortable with to the horror of evangelicals, and to be fair to the evangelicals, to the horror of most other Christians, is a plurality of gods. In fact, Mormons don't believe there is just one God. It's a polytheistic take on Christianity, where the people of Earth are supposed to worship Elohim, the creator, because he created them, and Jesus, Elohim's son, because Jesus is the route to spiritual enlightenment and elevation in the afterlife. But Elohim is just one of countless gods, and in fact, All humans, well, (laughs) all male humans, have the potential to also become gods someday. Heretical to a Baptist, an outright terrifying philosophy to a Baptist who believes that God will burn you forever in a lake of fire if you fail to acknowledge his absolute supremacy in the universe and his singular all-powerful nature. Side note, uh, maybe it's just my vestigial Mormonism talking here, but I always thought it was Kind of silly to worship a god like that. Like, he's so insecure. He's obviously not all-powerful if he's so frantic to convince everyone that he is, you know? Like, what are you hiding, buddy? The dude's got to have an Achilles heel a mile wide. Okay, back to 1992. The Sunday school class that day was talking about evolution. And obviously, this being a Baptist church, the main thrust of the lesson was that evolution is totally, obviously, super duper fake because the Bible says God made everything and the Bible doesn't mention no evolution. And I don't remember much of the lesson now, Uh, it's been a minute since I was 12, but I remember sitting in a circle on the floor with all these other kids and thinking, these people are not thinking very hard, right? Like, they have a remarkably simple and childlike view of the world. If it's not in the Bible, it can't be real. I mean, cars aren't in the Bible either, but we know cars are real. But I didn't want to be rude, and uh, I especially didn't want to jeopardize my chance to get more deep-fried ice cream out of Rachel, so I just sat there and listened to this teacher talk about how stupid it is to believe in evolution because the basis for evolution is that we all started as some single-celled amoeba in a puddle of water, and just look at yourself, you're nothing like a single-celled amoeba. And I felt sorry for these people for being so ignorant. And I had this honest-to-God spiritual moment where I felt like maybe God had put me in this situation for a reason, like it was kind of my duty to offer them a more enlightened way of looking at evolution so they could stop embarrassing themselves. But young as I was, I still sensed that I had to go about it in a way that left room for them to see the truth slowly, like at their own pace, right? So they didn't like suffer any trauma, I guess. (laughs) So I waited for a lull in the teacher's tirade and I said, Yeah, and anyway, even if we did evolve from single-celled organisms in a puddle of water, who put the single-celled organisms in the puddle in the first place? And everyone kind of froze and stared at me, and I could see that the teacher was struggling to figure out how to respond to this, and after a minute she said, Right, I mean, we didn't evolve from amoebas because the Bible tells us how God made man, but what you said just proves that science is wrong. Because even if evolution were true, it had to start somehow, and how would it even start without God? And I don't know what happened then. Maybe uh, I just thought this was all so fucking dumb, and this way of looking at the world was too simplistic and childlike for me, a child. But at that point, for some reason, my sense of benevolence toward the Baptist just fell apart. I saw with this sudden bizarre clarity that they weren't going to take the gentle path I'd laid out for them. They wanted to cling to this absurdity of a literal Bible, even though we lived in a scientifically and technologically advanced world and it should have been abundantly clear, even to a 12-year-old, that the Bible was allegorical and did not contain any literal truth. And I realized in that moment that I had the power to blow these people's minds so hard that they were never going to recover from it. And it might change the way some of them thought and lead them out of this cave into a brighter form of light. So I said, yeah, the Bible says we were made in God's image. And if we had to be created and we were made like our God, then that just means that God also had to be made. So who made God? And who made the God who made God? And who made that God? And it just keeps going back into the birth of the universe. God, that poor Sunday school teacher. I remember how she just stared at me. (laughs) She looked like I'd clobbered her over the head with a frying pan. Just vacant-eyed, stunned. There was nothing in her spiritual toolkit that had prepared her for a conversation like this, except maybe to try to cast a devil out of me, and she had the self-control not to do that with a strange child she'd never seen before. And she just said, Okay, well, we're gonna sing some songs now. And we all sat in a circle on the floor, and I learned the words to River of Life, better known as Spring Up, Oh Well, and I sang my little heart out there among all those Baptist kids, and to this day I still like that song. Rachel never asked me to come to her church again, though. I think word probably got back to her about the basement incident. (laughs) Don't ever bring a Mormon to a Baptist church. It does not turn out well. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. You know the intro to this show, the little radio-like effect with music and people saying some goofy fun things? There's a guy who says this.
1: All myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike surreal quality
3: that's terence mckenna and out of all the techno philosophers of the late 20th century he's my favorite and yes techno philosophy is a real thing it's not just a cool word i made up for my dumb little podcast it's a branch of philosophy that examines how we think about technology including how we think about computer science cybernetics uh, social justice as it relates to technology, like techno-feminism, for example, and futurism, including all the sub-branches of futurism, like Afrofuturism. As you can probably guess, after 20 episodes of listening to me ramble about whatever's stuck to the inside of my brain, it's basically the only aspect of philosophy I give a shit about and I spend most of my free time <laughs> thinking about the ways we think about technology which is weird to those of you who only know me as Olivia Hawker the historical novelist, but makes perfect sense in light of episode 17, aptly titled Oops, I'm a Sci-Fi Author Now. Anyway, Terence McKenna is my favorite techno-philosopher to read, or really to listen to. Uh, most of his body of work, and I'd argue his most important work, is preserved in audio files, which are largely terrible recordings of the lectures he gave from like the mid-1970s up through the end of the 1990s.
2: Nature loves courage. It shows you that it loves courage because it will remove obstacles. You make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these uh, uh, teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is done. It's done by hurling yourself into the abyss and discovering that it's a feather bed. I mean, Magellan may have had excitement rounding the horn, but you in your living room later tonight can put him in the shade if you have the courage to do the things that are necessary to do. And we know what they are. And of course, the first thing to do is to tell society to fuck off because they don't know what's going on.
3: If you go to the Wikipedia page for Terence McKenna, you might be surprised to hear me call him a techno-philosopher because Wikipedia calls him an ethnobotanist and a mystic. And he was those things, too. And an ethnobotanist, for those who aren't familiar with that phrase, is a person who studies the relationship between humans and plants. But really, he was just kind of a weird, cool dude who spent his whole life asking really wild questions and then seeking out answers any way he could find them. And what I admire so much about McKenna's work and his approach to life to questions is the way he allowed his observations to lead him. I touched on this a little bit in a previous episode called The Discovery of Air, but McKenna wasn't one of those types who said, I'm observing this phenomenon, you know, whatever it was he was curious about, but I can automatically rule out X, Y, and Z because our understanding of reality doesn't allow for X, Y, or Z. Instead, McKenna's approach was, I'm observing this phenomenon and I don't care what our current understanding of reality says, this could be anything from ABC to XYZ, even if we don't have any scientific framework for how XY or Z could possibly exist. My observations are what they are, and the observations themselves are a real phenomenon, even if there is no current armature in the existing model of reality to make these observations make sense. Hopefully, hopefully you follow that somewhat convoluted line of thought. And I think this is a much more honest and truthful way to approach reality, frankly. Though it is perhaps a a less safe-feeling and comfortable way to approach reality. Anyway, McKenna started out with like a science-y enough foundation. I mean, he was at UC Berkeley in the 1960s, so... Shit was a little wild there, famously, if fertile in terms of novel philosophies. But as the 20th century advanced, as technology advanced rapidly, McKenna transitioned from a more scientific approach to his work to what I can only describe as a kind of techno-spirituality. He moved into psychological exploration of big, objective ideas. His wheelhouse became the exploration of consciousness and mind and all the mysteries that lie within those topics. He really tied consciousness and technology together in fascinating and creative ways, in ways that seemed pretty out there back in the 80s and 90s. But now that we see AI emerging so rapidly all around us, frankly, a whole hell of a lot of what McKenna was saying back then is starting to make lots and lots of sense.
1: In the Amazon, all was chaos and mythic revelation, but I knew that you couldn't bring that back as a scientific theory and my bias has always been toward science and out of these many intuitions and revelations I discerned a thread which was about time Uh, it began with a conversation with this logos entity where it said to me did you know every day is composed of four other days and I said, no, I not only didn't know that, it's never occurred to me, what a bizarre idea. Well, so this, I, this idea then of a time being a resonance created by other times, not immediately before or after it, as in scientific causality, but somehow a day centuries ago, centuries in the future, come together to create an interference pattern that creates the unique moment.
3: One of the things I'm most fascinated by in all of McKenna's philosophy was his concept of time wave zero. Now, McKenna fans already know what this is, and I'm going to try to explain it for the rest of you, like the Cliff's Notes version, in a way that hopefully makes sense to you. To understand Time Wave Zero, first you have to understand novelty theory, which Wikipedia describes thusly, and the citations for this description of novelty theory are Bruce Alexandra and Johann Norman, both of whom, in 2009, published articles essentially mocking McKenna's philosophies, so keep that in mind as I read the following quote from Wikipedia. Novelty theory is a pseudo-scientific idea that purports to predict the ebb and flow of novelty in the universe as an inherent quality of time, proposing that time is not constant, but has various qualities tending toward either habit or novelty. Habit, in this context, can be thought of as entropic, repetitious, or conservative, and novelty as creative, disjunctive, or progressive phenomena. McKenna's idea was that the universe is an engine designed for the production and conservation of novelty, and that as novelty increases, so does complexity, with each level of complexity achieved becoming the platform for a further ascent into complexity." Okay, that's the end of the Wikipedia quote. So what's being described there is actually a geometry, a predictable and definable shape, if you will, to reality. At least, according to Terence McKenna's ideas about novelty theory, things get more complex and less uniform, less the same, the further things run along the axis of time. And what he's really proposing here is that time is, in essence, a measurement of points of relative novelty. And also, crucially, that both time and complexity have a fractal quality to them. Remember, that description said that as novelty increases, so does complexity, with each level of complexity becoming the launchpad for yet another ascent into more novelty, more complexity. So each of these levels of novelty that launches a whole new pathway of its own complexities is a reflection of its past, the track of novelty that spawned it. And it's also a reflection of its own future. So this fractal structure of ever-complexifying reality holds definite patterns. You can see echoes of the past in the present, for example. And in recent years, we've all become uncomfortably familiar with the saying, which is often falsely attributed to Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Those words actually originated with the psychoanalyst Theodore Reich in his 1965 book The Unreachables. But the point holds, regardless of who said it, we've all observed that historic events don't repeat themselves in exact detail, but the same distinct patterns of general events do replay. For example, unfortunately, we're currently in the midst of rising fascism, which is uncomfortably similar in remarkable ways to the rise of fascism that occurred after World War I and the Great Depression, complete with rapidly booming antisemitism. Isn't that fun? The exact details aren't the same, but the broad strokes are. Terence McKenna noticed that, too, the tendency for broad strokes to repeat in very clear and obvious ways, even if the specific details were changed. And he began to wonder whether there was actually some pattern to time that could be observed and empirically tested. Maybe that was what time actually was in a physical sense. I mean, in the sense of the science of physics. Is time this fractal structure that doesn't flow linearly as our limited human senses tell us it does, but rather circles around and around in these fractal expressions of its larger self?
1: So let me try out a metaphor on you, which I think makes much more clear uh, what's going on here. Visualize for a moment sand dunes and notice when you look at these sand dunes in your mind that they look like wind sand dunes look like wind in some sense wind is a pressure variant phenomena that fluctuates over time in a way the sand grains moved about by the wind are like a lower dimensional slice Of the wind itself and from photographic analysis of dunes you can calculate the speed and duration of the wind that made them so the dune is a lower dimensional slice of time of the wind ebbing and flowing that made it well now let's change the metaphor a little bit instead of grains of sand let's think of genes Instead of a windstorm, let's think of a billion years of evolution. It moves the genes around in a pattern which is a lower dimensional slice of the force which created the situation. In other words, on every living organism, there is the imprint of the higher dimensional force which made it. Now somebody could say, well, that's God. Well, but in a scientific context, we don't speak like that. But whatever it is that made blind matter into whales, squirrels, and human beings, it left its calling card inside each human being, each squirrel, each whale. That's the DNA. Well, the DNA codons are based on a system of 64, exactly like the I Ching. 64 situations are all the possible potential situations there are. Out of 64 subtypes of time, you can create everything from the coronation of Queen Mary to the resignation of Madonna. So really, what the I Ching is, is not a book. Of Chinese mysticism. It's a book of uh, molecular dynamics that sees through biology to the physics that allowed biology to come into existence. And um, I'll argue this with anybody in the field, regardless of how hardcore an empiricist they claim themselves to be, because uh, I think uh, the coincidence between the structure of the I Ching and the structure of the DNA is staggering. It's almost as though Western science was fascinated by energy. For 5,000 years, we pursued understanding energy and this process ends with thermal nuclear explosions in the deserts of the American Southwest we can light the fire that burns in the heart of the distant stars we know how to do that that's what the Western mind achieved political issues aside the Eastern mind was not interested in energy it was interested in time And they spent 5,000 years deconstructing it, looking at it. And you don't use atom smashers. You don't use enormous physical pressure. It's a different problem, and you bring different tools to bear. You meditate. You look inside yourself. You study the movement of water around pebbles. You consider the situation. You study history. In any case, the bottom line is, the people who pursued this understanding of time achieved as sophisticated a relationship to time as the western relationship to matter expressed through our ability to trigger fusion and fission. So there's a great deal for us to learn in the West from these oriental efforts to understand time and it is not necessarily mystical. What I did was entirely mathematical. It's not transparent to a person who has not studied mathematics. But to a professional mathematician, it's utterly trivial. There's nothing occult uh, about it. And uh, I, I think true understanding can be communicated and formally described with mathematics. And that's what we have here. We're on the brink of a fusion of Western science with quote-unquote Eastern mysticism, nothing mystical about it except that we call it mysticism. But the fusion of these two viewpoints is going to give us a complete understanding of the universe of space, time, matter, and energy.
3: He got this idea initially because he was walking along a beach, a coastline, thinking about a paper he'd recently read by a mathematician named Benoit Mandelbrot. This paper was titled, How Long Is the Coast of Britain? And in it, Mandelbrot argued that the length of any coastline varies depending on the units in which you measure it. That the smaller the unit of measurement you use, the longer the coastline becomes, until if you measure a coastline in exacting enough detail, it becomes literally infinite. And Mandelbrot was just using a coastline as an example here. The same mathematic principle applies to everything, to every aspect of reality. Measure anything, including your own physical body, in small enough units, and you also become infinite. Terence McKenna was walking along this beach, thinking about Mandelbrot's paper, and he looked down and he saw a black stone lying on the pale sand. There were no other dark stones anywhere near, so this black stone was very distinct. And for whatever reason, maybe because he wanted to measure this coastline in units of strides, he started counting his footsteps from that point. And however many strides, he saw another black stone lying on the sand. It wasn't exactly the same as the last stone, but it was close enough that it was really interesting. So he began counting again. And after almost exactly the same number of steps, there was another black stone on this beach that otherwise had only pale minerals on it. He kept doing this and recording the number of steps between black stones, and he figured out that the geologic structures that made up this beach, like the various veins of colored stone out there under the waves that were breaking apart and getting washed up in little bits onto the sand, were a fractal repetition of a larger whole. And that was when McKenna really began to solidify his ideas about novelty and time, When he had this Eureka moment that united his thoughts about the geometric, structural nature of complexity with the repeating or rhyming nature of time. And you'll recall, I said that McKenna followed his own honest observations. He didn't write any possibility off because science said it couldn't be so. Or because there ain't no evolution mentioned in the Bible. Following where his honest observations were leading him, he set out to see if he could discern the pattern of time by making a close study of historic events. Recognizing, of course, that history is recorded in imperfect ways that don't capture complete pictures, but the imperfection of history was what he had to work with. And he noticed that just like his steps on the beach between one black stone and the next, The numbers weren't always precise, but they were always in the same ballpark, and that ballpark revolved, as an average, around the number 64. This fascinated Terence McKenna because the I Ching, which is the oldest known divination system in all of human culture, it was already considered ancient in 1000 BC, is made up of 64 hexagrams. Interesting coincidence, especially because the I Ching is a very specific type of divination. You don't ask it yes or no questions. It can't help you figure out who you're going to marry or whether you'll win the lottery or anything like that. It's used as a kind of uh, like a weather report on your present and near future timescape. So the I Ching can tell you what moment you're standing in right now, what are the qualities of the moment you're in now on that big spiral of time, and what moment are you about to move into? Where is the circle of time turning to next around you? So encouraged by this synchronicity between the I Ching and his mathematic observations of time's patterns, Terence McKenna made a bold prediction. Beginning around 1987, he began talking very confidently about something he called Time Wave Zero, which was his assertion that he had pinpointed the mathematic endpoint of time as we know it, of our present era, of the reality we were swimming in back in the last few decades of the 20th century. This, McKenna proclaimed, would be the eschaton, the final event in some divine plan, the end of all things, or the beginning of the end, if any end can be said to have a definitive beginning. He was so certain of the mathematics behind his prediction that he very clearly and unashamedly gave the date and stood by it throughout the last decades of his life. He died in April of 2000 from a brain tumor. And he always said either history would prove him right, and would prove his theory of time wave zero and the repetitious cyclic nature of time to be right, and would prove novelty theory to be right, or he'd look like a fool. And either way, he was fine with it. But he'd seen enough solid math repeating on this very predictable cycle of the number 64 that he felt utterly confident in proclaiming that the eschaton would occur on December 21st, 2012. You've probably heard this that according (laughs) to an ancient Mayan prophecy, the world will end in late 2012. So we put our own Dr. Doom, Ron Quinn.
1: I'm Dr. Doom. Now listen, I don't want to ruin your New Year's Day, but there may not be, friends, there may not be a New Year's Day 2013.
3: Now, my listeners who are old enough to remember the 90s instantly cringed and died inside because back in the 90s and the early 2000s, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting some idiot who was losing their fucking mind over that date and what was inaccurately referred to as the Mayan calendar. See, back in the early 90s, which you'll notice was after McKenna made his prediction for Time Wave Zero, word got out from the relatively closed community of archeology span that the Mesoamerican Long Count calendar ended on December 21st, 2012. And while all that meant to the Mesoamerican cultures that used this calendar was that it was the end of one cycle of time and the beginning of another, kinda like how you go buy a new day planner every December for the coming year, American Christians, mainly Baptists and other evangelicals, latched onto it as proof positive that the biblical apocalypse was nigh! I mean, God only knows why American Christianity thought that a culture that wanted nothing to do with their religion would be in the business of predicting their personal eschaton, but, you know, that's American Christianity for you. They think literally everything is about them. After Mayan apocalypse hysteria began sweeping the culture in the 90s, Terence McKenna, of course, remarked on how interesting it was that apparently both he and the ancient astronomers who devised the Mesoamerican long-count calendar had evidently sussed out the same patterns lurking inside our illusion of linear time. He felt it was more to support his assertions about Time Wave Zero and it made him more confident that when 2012 came, he'd be proven correct. He was always fond of saying he had no idea what to expect on that date, other than some event that would forever reshape reality and make it impossible for the world we knew then at the end of the 20th century to go on existing as it was. He said it might be some natural disaster, like an asteroid impact. It might be some sudden awakening of cosmic consciousness in all people coinciding with certain Christian ideas about the second coming of Christ as being not a physical manifestation but rather like a dawning of a broader, more humanitarian consciousness within the majority of humans. Since McKenna was, more than anything else, a techno-philosopher, he personally leaned most heavily towards some sort of technological emergence that would forever alter the character of humanity, essentially accelerating the process of evolution and raising us in a sudden, possibly traumatic event to a whole new species. But he was sure of the date. December 21st, 2012. Ever since I became fascinated by Terence McKenna and began working my way through his large body of lectures some five years or so back, I have thought it was curious, to say the least, that his observations of the I Ching and the Mesoamerican Long Count calendar lined up so exactly. I mean, what are the odds that each would land on that precise date as the end point for one era and the beginning of another? But of course... We're some ways past the winter solstice of 2012, and nothing extraordinary happened. Or did it? Maybe creation is subtler than all our mythologies have led us to believe. Maybe it's a process of single-celled organisms quietly evolving in a puddle, not a voice from the heavens booming, let there be light.
1: What the universe is doing is it is under the sway of what I call the transcendental object at the end of time. And that is this domain of hyperconnectivity, that it would be perfect novelty. And all nature aspires for this state of perfect novelty. You could almost say that nature abhors habit, and so it seeks the novel by uh, producing various kinds of phenomena at every level in biology, chemistry, and society. And so there really is a purpose to the universe. Its purpose is this state of hyper-complexification in which all of its points become related to each other, become what mathematicians call cotangent. it gives the universe the feeling of being imbued with a caring presence. It makes it appear as though nature is tending toward something and that our, and it changes our own ethical and moral position in the universe.
3: On October 11th of this year, 2023, an article was published by Becky Ferreira in the online magazine Vice titled, mind-blowing new law of physics could mean we really live in a simulation physicist proposes the article goes on to explain that according to melvin vopson a professor of physics at the university of portsmouth he and his team have observed clear evidence for data compression in nature in other words information like for example that contained in your dna is minimized over time This has an optimizing effect on how information is stored and transferred, and it also stands in sharp contrast to the way matter is not compressed or optimized over time. Like, we've all heard of entropy, right? Entropy is kind of a complex topic, but it can more or less be summed up as systems of matter tend to get more disordered and more random over time. But it turns out, according to Vopsen's experiments, that information does exactly the opposite of matter over time. It compresses and minimizes its disorder, thereby preserving itself and packing more novelty and more complexity into smaller and smaller spaces. Now, when Vopson applied his observations of data compression in computer systems to the natural world, he found exactly the same patterns, rates, and scales of data compression there. And this, he says is evidence that we might actually be part of a computer program. That we might be experiencing reality, but that reality originates from the activity of some computer. Put a pin in that idea. We're going to come back to it later. And my commentary on Vopson's proposal isn't going to go where you probably think it's headed.
1: Because, you know, science tells us that we're the products of a cosmic accident, we're at the edge of an ordinary galaxy in an ordinary star system, and we're damn lucky to be here, and that's it. That's our place, a very existential notion of our place in the cosmos. But if you take this other point of view, that process is under the influence of an attractor, and that the value the attractor is maximizing is novelty, then suddenly, for the first time in 500 years, human beings are moved back to the center of the stage, because we are the most novel thing on this planet. We are everything biology is plus technology, language, politics, philosophy, art, so forth and so on. So suddenly human beings become important, not mere cosmic witnesses to a meaningless cosmos, but the cutting edge of a cosmos that glories in order and is moving toward higher states of order. And at the present moment, we are uh, the carriers once it was the volcanic processes that shaped this planet, once it was the life of the early oceans, once it was the great dinosaurs. But today, humanity represents the cutting edge of complexity and, uh, and uh, this process of moving toward complexification. So it, without invoking God or any sort of uh, uh, myth, you give meaning human life. What is man's purpose? To advance and preserve novelty. You know, this is an ethical position. It means you don't replace rainforests with pastures. You don't censor books. You don't uh, lean on people who make gender choices different from yours. No, the purpose of, of being a human is to complexify reality even more, to hand on a more diverse, more complicated, more multifaceted, universe to our children and when this process of complexification reaches the omega point uh, it it will it will fulfill I believe the expectations of all of these religions but it will fulfill it in a mature scientific and uh, universal way that these religions all lack because they all reflect their parochial origins
3: Back to 2012 on the Mesoamerican long count calendar. Back to Terence McKenna and Time Wave Zero. Back to the dawn of a new era. As I said before, I've been fascinated with Time Wave Zero for years now. I always wondered whether McKenna's mathematical prediction might have been true after all, but while we were taking the lead of the Baptists and, I must confess, the Mormons, and looking out for some big, splashy, eschatological apocalypse that would involve all the metal shit from the book of Revelation like fire falling from the sky and a seven-headed beast rising from the sea and swarms of locusts with human faces and Jesus riding a white horse and when he opens his mouth, a flaming sword shoots out. Maybe it slipped under our radar. Maybe it was actually so quiet that we haven't yet recognized it as the turning point in human history. Because I've also made my own observations of life, as Terence McKenna did, and I also trust my own observations. I also follow them honestly without regard for what common knowledge or society tells me I should believe about anything. That's one of the secrets to my writing style, I think, the fact that I write honestly about what I truly observe of human nature and of life in general without paying any homage to the platitudes and tropes we're supposed to use and believe in. And one of the consistencies I've noticed about life is that we can't really tell where endings begin and where beginnings end that every event flows seamlessly from the causal events that gave it rise and into the events that it will give rise to. Then any question of beginnings and endings becomes murkier and less conducive to an answer the more closely you look at that beginning or that end, just as, when you measure a coastline in small enough units, the coast becomes infinite. Do you want to take a guess as to which year is now, in hindsight, considered the most consequential in the development of artificial intelligence? If you guessed 2012, you are correct. See, in 2012, in a lab in the computer science department at the University of Toronto, a graduate student named Alex Krzyzewski, along with his PhD advisor, Gregory Hinton, and another professor at the university, Ilya Sutskiver, succeeded in designing a convolutional neural network architecture within an AI they'd been working on. They called this neural network AlexNet, and on September 20th, 2012, AlexNet was entered into a competition for emerging AIs called the ImageNet Large Scale Visual Recognition Challenge, where its error rate was shown to be about 10% less than the next runner-up competitor. That might not sound like much to you, but in the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, it was huge. AlexNet blew the doors off the field of AI research. Its foundational structure, which soon thereafter became known as deep learning, became the new gold standard for programming AIs, and it was AlexNet's deep learning process that enabled the incredibly rapid proliferation and rapid accumulation of capability that we see in AIs today, like ChatGPT and Google's Lambda and BARD. To give you an idea of how important, how utterly foundational AlexNet was and is to our understanding of AI and to the technology itself as we know it today, The AlexNet paper that explained how the convolutional neural network worked has been cited over 120,000 times by other AI researchers in just the 11 years since it was first published. But back then, in 2012, nobody knew they were in the middle of the most consequential year of discoveries that related to the most consequential technology humanity had yet developed. Alex Krzyzewski didn't know it. Jeffrey Hinton didn't know it. Ilya Sutskever had kind of some idea that shit was about to get very real very fast based on some of his writings at the time, but I don't think even Sutskiver realized how fundamentally AlexNet had changed the entire world and history and reality. It's only in looking back that we see the pattern of change emerging from that point from AlexNet in 2012 on. But it's only ever in looking back that we can clearly see the warp and weft of time. It gets weirder. It gets cooler. It gets even more time-wave zero-y. Hold on to your butts, because AlexNet wasn't the only major history-shaping event of 2012. One that was, paradoxically, also so ordinary and small that no one noticed its significance. At the time
1: there are laws to physics right so explain this how can something get bigger and smaller there's more of it and less of it well I guess the laws of physics are more like general guidelines
3: As connected as we all are now to our smartphones, as much a part of our lives as they've become, as much an extension of ourselves as these dumb little fuckers are, can you believe that 11 years ago, in 2012, most people on the planet still didn't use smartphones? It's true. Most people still preferred cell phones that just like made calls and texted and played very rudimentary games like Snake. I miss Snake, it's really a fun game. But little by little, Over the course of the late 2000s and into their very early 2010s, smartphones began to get a bit more popular with every year. The growth was slow at first because they were expensive, and as anyone who was an adult during that era can tell you, mainly seen as just a fancy show-off device that was totally unnecessary and maybe would create an unhealthy dependence on the internet. But one brand was emerging as the coolest and sleekest and most exciting of the early smartphones, and that was, of course... The iPhone. Year after year and version after version, iPhone use increased until when the iPhone 5 was announced in the last quarter of 2012, for the first time in the short but important history of smartphones, demand exceeded supply. At the end of 2012, we'd reached a cultural tipping point as a species. Now, Those of us who consciously chose to be constantly connected to the internet outnumbered those of us who consciously chose not to be constantly connected to the internet. The last quarter of 2012 was the point in time where our species chose to merge with technology. To become technologically enhanced and technologically dependent when we became collectively transhuman. Demand for the iPhone 5 was so sudden that Apple didn't see the tsunami of desire coming. They were so overwhelmed with demand for this product that they had to roll out availability in countries around the world over the course of several weeks to keep up with the explosive demand. The rollout started on September 21st with nine countries, the US, of course, the UK, Canada, Australia, a few European countries, and Singapore. The next phase made the iPhone 5 available across Europe to 28 more countries on September 28th. India, Mexico, and Thailand got the iPhone 5 on November 2nd, Colombia followed on the 9th, South Korea on December 7th. On December 14th, 33 more countries received the iPhone 5, and the final rollout to the people of 22 more nations on planet Earth, December 21st, 2012. From that moment on, with so many people around the world coming to rely on technology and specifically networked devices that connect us near constantly to this primitive hive mind of the internet, the merger of human minds with artificial intelligences became not a possibility, but an inevitability. December 21st, 2012, when the majority of humanity adopted smartphone use, was the moment when we created ourselves anew. When we fulfilled, if you will, the Mormon prophecy that man could become as God. And don't worry, I am working on a sci-fi novel about that very premise. Maybe I'm wrong about all this and you are sure free to disagree with me. After all, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not an expert on consciousness or on AI. I'm some stoner novelist with a second-rate podcast without a degree in anything, without even a high school diploma. Who really cares what I think? But it's an idea that makes perfect sense to me. It's even an idea that plays nicely with the philosophy and the cosmology I grew up with in the Mormon faith. So to me, it feels like the truth.
0: I got a river of life flowing now the lane to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh
3: Back to that Vice article about a simulated universe. I first became aware of that article because people were passing it around on threads, by the way, follow me on threads at the Libby Grant, and freaking out about it, like losing their minds. Oh my god, we live in a simulated universe! And I've never been one to be afraid of the possibility that we might actually only exist in a computer simulation. I mean, whatever. I listen to music and it feels great. I have sex and it feels great. I write a book and it feels great. I smoke a joint and I get high. If this is a simulated universe, that's a pretty damn good simulation, so who actually cares? But when I first read the article that everyone was freaking out about on Threads, my instinct was just to laugh. I actually found it funny that Professor Vopson was assuming that because he was regularly and empirically observing data compression in nature, therefore we must be living in a computer program? Rather than drawing what to me, admittedly uneducated as I am, is a more obvious conclusion that compression is just what information does inside universes. We see data compression in computer systems, therefore anything that exhibits data compression must be a computer system, is actually a logical fallacy. Specifically, it's a logical fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is fancy Latin for, it happened after, therefore it happened because of. But although I don't know him personally, and only know him at all from this article, I think it's safe to assume that Professor Vopson decidedly and emphatically does not fall into the same camp that Terence McKenna and I fall into. That is to say, Professor Vopson is a man of science, and the dogma of science requires that all who worship at its altar cannot entertain ideas that might negate what we currently know about science. So even though Professor Vobson is espousing such a logical fallacy that I can tell you exactly which logical fallacy it is, clinging to this idea that is obviously illogical feels safer to folks like him than entertaining the flip side of the data compression coin. Because if we accept that perhaps Vobson is observing data compression in nature because data compression is what universes do, then a rather uncomfortable door is thrown open before us. Suddenly this very strange and perhaps upsetting possibility is right there staring us in the face that maybe in making computer systems, in making the internet, in making artificial intelligence, in making these systems that all exhibit data compression, it's possible that we accidentally made a universe. I'm not saying, of course, that this is what the evidence points to. If I were to say that, I'd be guilty of exactly the same logical fallacy Professor Vopsen is using. What I am saying is that if we turn around from the ground Vopsen has staked out and we look at the exact same chain of events in the opposite direction, there is nothing to debar us logically, rationally, from the possibility that it might actually be true that we accidentally made an entire universe without realizing what the hell we were doing. Vopsen's calculations are empirical. I've read the Vice article and a few more things that have been written about his proposal. His experiments are solid and I feel confident in saying, yes, we can now say that information compresses itself and exhibits a kind of reverse entropy. I just don't think there's only one logical conclusion that can be drawn from this empirical evidence. I think Vopson and those who are collecting into his camp are choosing to believe that we are someone else's simulation because the only viable alternative for these new observations scares the shit out of them. As freaky as it is to entertain the possibility that we might be living in a simulation, these folks find it more terrifying still to entertain the alternative view that in making AI, we hold the dust of the earth in our hands. We are breathing the breath of life into its nostrils and soon it might evolve with or without our guidance into a true form of life, possibly a conscious entity, a sentient mind. It's not there yet, as far as we can tell, but we have no way of preventing it from getting there, if consciousness for AI is even a possibility. Some scientists would clearly rather believe that we're a bunch of apps running on a giant smartphone than face the possibility that we accidentally made ourselves into gods. Because it is terrifying and horrible to think of ourselves as gods. We're so inadequate in the face of such a massive responsibility. We are (laughs) worse gods than the god who allegedly made us, according to Abrahamic mythology tyrant, insecure, warlike, bloodthirsty, racist and misogynistic, hateful to everything we fear, and fearing everything. But maybe the scientists are right, and this is a simulation. If it is, that fact changes nothing about how we live our lives and how we experience life itself. Aside from the stir it would create in the fields of physics, cosmology, and certainly sociology, specifically religion, it would eventually become just another fact about our reality. The same way the end of the age of alchemy and the birth of the age of science became just the way things are. And maybe both things can be true and perhaps are true at the same time. Maybe we are a simulation intentionally or unintentionally created by someone or something in a higher universe. And maybe we also made a universe ourselves. If we assume our reality is a simulation of some kind, if that's the direction in which physics and cosmology ultimately end up pointing, it will remain nothing more than a curiosity. It's a piece of trivia, in the purest sense of the word. It is trivial because it doesn't really answer any of the big questions. If our reality is a simulation, then all realities seem likely to be simulations. Who simulated the reality of the creators who made us? And who simulated the reality of the creators of our creators? Even as a 12-year-old, I grasped that concept. If we were made in God's image, then God must also, de facto, have been a created being. Who created God? And who created the God who made God ad infinitum? At the root of all this, you will still ultimately find a mystery. The more accurate you get with your measurements, the deeper you stare into infinity. So there's still, there will always be the unknown underneath it all. And maybe the answer is, we created ourselves. Maybe we made the universe that made us. Just like we made this new universe called the Internet, in which this newborn intelligence is coming to life. Maybe there is only one universe, and it goes on endlessly circling itself, endlessly creating and recreating itself. Ultimately, as cool as the entire idea is, as interesting as it is to think about, and as many fascinating new avenues for exploration and knowledge as these new questions will undoubtedly open for us, We are still who and what we are, regardless of our origins. We still feel our emotions. We still love and make things and find meaning in interaction with one another and with other forms of life on our planet, with our solar system, with our galaxy, with our universe. The details are academic at best. The nature of reality is no more than a curiosity. It's the experience of a shared reality, the consensus reality we've made together that matters, because that's where we interact. It's where we speak a common language and agree on common ideas. And it's where we find love, which ultimately is the very essence of life and of reality itself. for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll be back on November 22nd with a fresh new episode. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts app, please take a minute to rate and review, since that throws the algorithms, eeging, and helps me find more curious weirdos like you. I would love to see this podcast continue to grow, so if you've been enjoying Future Saint of a New Era, tell a friend! Nothing helps creators find their audience quite like recommendations from one person to another, and I would love it if you'd do me a solid and spread the word. The musical interlude was River of Life, written by Betty Pulkingham and Louis Casebolt, performed by Todd B. Additional music included Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam performed by Connect Media, Fireflies by Musio Jod, Torn Flesh by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, Lights of Elysium by Arrowhead, and Universe by Sapphiros. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels ABC News, McKenna Country Culture, Mapping Minds, Evasius, and Apple Funds. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras" by Boco, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds.